Today's reading comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. But then when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand that, uh, the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus was increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Y'all can be seated. Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? All right. Well, my name is Kevin Newman. Um, I serve here as a deacon uh, and also help to run our Risen Men's Ministry. And uh, my family and I, we've been a part of this church for a few years, and I wanted to introduce you to them. Um, so here is the Newman crew. Uh, that little man there, that is Joseph. He's three years old, and uh, if you have kids... He's probably pushed or tackled or pinched one of them, uh, probably all of them, but uh, trust me, we're working on it, right? We're working on it. Uh, He loves with his hands. I mean, what can I say? He loves with his hands, but uh, he's a ton of fun. Uh, That pretty girl there, that's Kinley. She is nine years old, and um, she loves to talk about horses with anyone that's interested, even if you're not interested. Uh, she, uh, if she could, she'd spend every waking moment around them, um, and it's so much fun to see her love the, love the horses, and, and um, she's learning to, learning to ride. And then uh, that's my beautiful bride, Erin. I'm not going to tell you how old she is, um, and, but I'll say this, and I can't look at her because uh, I won't be able to keep it together, but uh, I ha- I've learned more about the goodness and the grace of God um, through her um, more than any other person in my life. Um, so, love you, sweetheart. Not, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, but man, I, I just, I gotta say one thing. Um, last thing I'll say about me is this is the first time I've ever given a full-on sermon. And so if you're new with us and you're kind of like, uh, it's, it's like the first, first time he's ever done this. You're exactly right. Uh, you nailed it. Um, but I am so excited about the word. I'm nervous for sure, but I'm so excited about what the Word has for us today in the message. It's, it's really uh, been working on my heart all week, and I'm excited to share what God has told me, and, and hopefully it'll have the same um, impact on you guys. Um, the Word of God is just so powerful and so good that even if I were to just read the Scripture, pray, um, I feel like we'd leave here and be like, man, that was a good Word. And so I, I want to lean into that. Um, but having said all that, man, I sure do need some prayer. Um, so will you, will you please pray with me and pray for me before we get going? Father, thank you for this time. Um, it's, it's always such a blessing and an encouragement 
to gather together and to worship our Lord Jesus. And, and uh, I just ask that you please meet us here in this space. Holy Spirit, please empower me to proclaim the gospel of Jesus with clarity and with power. I ask for you to speak through me so that I may rightly understand and we may rightly understand your scriptures. And, and I also ask that we be receptive to your truth and what you have for us this morning. Um, Lord, my hope is that this won't be just a time of information, but Lord, of deep transformation. And so, so we need you. Please stir our hearts for Jesus. And I pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, today we're continuing our, our journey through the book of Luke. And in the past couple of weeks, we, we uh, read about Jesus' birth and then also the first few days after his birth um, as an infant. And today we're going to jump forward. We're going to jump forward 12 years to when Jesus was a child. And this is the only biblical account that we have of Jesus as an adolescent. Uh, and, and before we get into the text, I want to briefly touch on a couple things that I think is important um, to help set this passage and provide a little bit of background. Um, now, the setting of this passage, it takes place during the Feast of the Passover. And we find here Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, along with his half-brothers and half-sisters and likely his cousins, they're, they're traveling, to, they're making the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Um, and commentators, they estimate that about two hundred to 300,000 people, they'd make this trek every year to the Feast of the Passover. So, the city of Jerusalem would swell significantly in this time, all these people heading up there. And, and, and for Jesus and for Mary and Joseph, the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem was about 90 miles, and they would do this on foot. And so it took about three days to get there. Um, people, typically they travel in, in large caravans. They do this for safety reasons because um, thieves and robbers, they knew that a lot of people would be traveling to Jerusalem and, and they'd be carrying valuables with them. So these people were very vulnerable to, for attack. And so to avoid this, they, they travel in these large caravans from city to city. Um, and so typically these, tra- these caravans, because of the Jewish tradition, they'd be, they'd be divided up into groups of men, groups of women, and groups of children. And then they'd all travel together in a caravan. And I just want to address this now, I don't think we need to spend too much time on it, but I'm sure you all are thinking about it and have thought about it. Um, the fact that Joseph and Mary, that they lost Jesus. Uh, that they lost, they lost the Son of God. Um, well, well here's, here's, if you consider the size of these caravans and, and the fact that, that they were divided up into groups, it might seem a little more pros- probable. I mean, uh, Joseph probably thought that Jesus was with Mary, or, and then Mary probably thought that Joseph or Jesus was with Joseph, or, or maybe they both thought that they were with their brothers and sisters and cousins and kids and running around, and, and um, that might be, that seems a little more probable that, that, um, that they lost Jesus. Um, you think, doesn't it? Maybe? Well, I kind of sense that maybe there's still, still some of you that are like, yeah, but I, wouldn't, I would always know where my kid is. All the time. I, really? Have you seen what our lobby looks like after service? And in the parking lot, we've got, there's kids running around without shoes on. There's toddlers tackling each other in front of the fireplace. There's babies walking out the front door. This was a few weeks ago. Uh, I was taking the trash out back to the dumpster on the side. I was on my way back. And I saw three kids stick their face in the fountain out there and drink the water. 
Anybody else see that out there? No, I don't think so because no one was watching them. I'm not going to tell you who those kids were. I know one of you is like, well, that's where he got pink eye from. But one of them may have been Joseph, I'm just saying. But that's not my point. The point is we got to give a little bit of grace to, to Joseph and Mary here. Uh, there was a lot going on. And, and so that's, that's what we see in this text. That's what's going on in this passage. And, and I just want to mention uh, one more thing. Um, Jesus being 12 years old, um, that is significant. Uh, this was a transition age for Jewish boys. And in and, and those times, Jewish boys, they transitioned to manhood at the age of 13. And so he is starting that process or right in the middle of that process, transitioning to what they would define as manhood. Um, this meant that they were responsible for their own actions. And um, they, they would have to start to def- define and practice their own faith. And it became their own personal faith and not that of their, their parents. Um, this is similar to the bar mitzvah ceremony and tradition that the Jewish uh, culture practices today. Although Jesus predates this tradition by about 500 years, there was a lot of similarities um, going on. So now with all that in mind, the setting and the age of Jesus, and the age of Jesus I want to spend the rest of our time looking at Jesus and the aspects that I think we can pull out uh, from Luke's account of this moment in his childhood. Like I mentioned, this is the only account we have of Jesus as a child. And, and, and why I think this is significant is because we get a glimpse into Jesus and his development for him becoming a man. You know, I, I love to learn about successful people. And, and in particular, how did they become so successful? How did they get to that position or so good in their craft? Um, and it's kind of a, it is a little bit of an obsession of mine, but what I'll, I'll, I'll see somebody performing at a high level or see um, an executive leading so well, and I'll think, how, how, did they, how did they get to that position? So I'll go back and research, you know, what, what, did, what did it take for them to become so good or such a, um, a high level of influence? And, um, and this covers a broad range of people from athletes to musicians to performers to business executives, like I mentioned, and um, Books like Talent is Overrated and uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, they, they really resonate to me because what they tell you is that there's a lot of circumstances and a lot of things behind the scenes that you don't see that went on in that person's life to get them to that position. It didn't happen, it didn't happen overnight. Typically, we see that there's a whole group of people that helped that person get to where they, they were, uh, um, were able to get to. Um, I think of uh, people like Tiger Woods. Um, so when he was a, a baby, his dad would take him and put him in a, uh, in a uh, baby, baby carriage or whatever, high chair, a baby high, uh, high chair uh, in the garage. And, and his dad would sit there and hit golf balls into a net. And uh, Tiger, being a baby, you know, he's just sitting there drooling on himself and chewing on something. But Tiger's dad would hit golf balls over and over and over again while he was there. And his dad was left-handed. And so when Tiger got to be old enough to walk and hold a club, he just simply emulated and mirrored what he saw his dad do over and over again. And, and I'm not saying dads go out, buy a net, learn how to swing left-handed and force your kid to sit there, but I'm just, that's one example. Another one is Bill Gates. who He attended, he, uh, he attended one of the only private high schools in the world that had a computer terminal. Um, colleges at this time didn't even have them. But he just happened to attend the school that did. And, and, and Gates was likely one of the first people in his generation 
to learn computer programming and to practice computer programming. That's, that's a one in a billion type of opportunity, and that set him light years ahead of anyone his age and, and especially anyone older than him. And, and then he can't help but think of the, the story of Michael Jordan uh, not making his varsity basketball team. And, and that event had such a profound impact on his life that he played with a chip on his shoulder his, his entire career. He always felt like he had something to prove or he wasn't good enough or he was scared that that moment was going to happen again to him. He even, he even said this at the end of his career when he was reflecting back. He said this, When I was working out and I got tired and figured I ought to stop, I'd close my eyes and see that list in the locker room without my name on it. So that's what drove him. That's what, at that age, set a path for Michael Jordan to get to accomplish what he did. Well, I I think in this passage in Luke, we get a small glimpse into the life of Jesus as a child in his development. We get to see aspects of his childhood that were incredibly formative in him becoming the man that he became. And it's evident that at an early age, Jesus had a clear understanding of his purpose on earth. And we can see how he lived out that purpose in just these few verses. And I think it's important because we are all called to follow in Christ's example. In 1 John chapter 2, it says this, that whoever says he abides in him, him being Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, so how did Jesus walk as a child? In this passage, I want to point out three key aspects of his life as he, even as a 12-year-old boy, that we can take and apply in our own lives today. And, and, and that is what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. So the first aspect I want us to see from Jesus' life is that he was raised in a family of devoted followers. We see this starting in verse 41 of chapter 2. It says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Luke includes this note to show us how devoted Joseph and Mary were to their faith. The fact that he mentions that both of them went to Jerusalem every year for the feast is significant. Um, In in those days, uh, Jewish men, they uh, they were only required to attend the feast once in their lifetime. Um, In Deuteronomy 16, we saw that uh, originally, Jewish men were required to, to attend the feast every year, but the trek be, was so hard for people to get there every year that um, they, the rabbis softened this requirement to once in their lifetime. But we still see Ju- uh, Joseph going every single year. And on top of that, Mary also traveled every year with him. And Mary wasn't required to go at all. And it was very dangerous for, for women to make this trek there and back, but she went anyway. And this, this shows us how deeply devoted that both Joseph and Mary were to their faith. And, and we also saw last week that Mark covered in, in the passages in chapter 2 that Jesus was raised in a deeply religious and devoted household. His parents modeled what it looked like to be faithful followers of Yahweh. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, uh, one of the things that was really strange to her, well, there was many, but... Um, one of the things that was really strange for her was how we would give greeting cards to each other on the holidays. And, and it wasn't the fact that we gave greeting cards. It was, it was what we would write 
in the greeting cards that she thought was a little bit weird. We'd, we'd write these really long messages about how we felt about each other, uh, how much we loved each other, and specific things that we loved about each other. And, and I'll admit, this, this part was a little weird. Uh, we would take the cards, and then we'd, we'd read them, and then we'd pass them around to each other, and we'd all read what that person wrote about the other person. I, I don't know why we did that. My parents are here today, so love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. I'll, I'll admit, that part was pretty weird, but... Uh, but why I mention this is because this was common language in the house I grew up in. It wasn't just, it wasn't just uh, in greeting cards and, and on holidays. That, uh, my parents, they said these things. They were very open um, to me and to my sister about their love for us and their gratitude for us and the men and women that we, be, we have become. And, and they would be very vocal in the gifts that they see in us that God has given us. And now my parents are far from perfect, trust me, and they'll be the first ones to tell you that. But this had a profound impact on me in the de- my development, and, and I would not be the man I am today if it wasn't for their influence. And I say this because Jesus would not have been the man he was if not for his parents, Joseph and Mary. Now, I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere near smart enough to understand how Jesus, being fully God and fully man, grew in wisdom through the influence of his parents, but the scriptures clearly state that he did. I'll leave that for Sean to unpack another time. I mean, this is my first sermon after all. That's, I, you can't set the bar too high, right? That's a, uh. So when we look back at Jesus' childhood, first, the first aspect that we see is that he grew up and was surrounded by a devoted followers of God. And this had a significant impact in his development I make this point because I think this is a reminder to us that our actions and words and our rituals and our habits, they have great impact to the people that God has placed in our lives. Parents, what are you teaching your children through your words, through through your habits, through your time? Do they see you prioritizing your faith? Do they do they see you as a committed follower of Jesus? Or are you are you teaching them that comfort? or that entertainment, or that sports, or, or work? Are, they, are you teaching them that that is your priority, that that is your devotion? And I know that many of you aren't parents now, or your kids are older and have moved out of the house, but God has placed each of us in a specific sphere of influence today. And so what do those around you see as your priority? What or whom do they say you are devoted to? In some way, far beyond my understanding, God, Jesus, the Son of God, was influenced and grew in wisdom through his parents' leading in their devotion to Yahweh. It's our responsibility as parents, as co-workers, as friends, as fellow believers. It's our responsibility to build people up and to point them to Jesus. The second aspect of Jesus' adolescence that I want to point out is his passion for knowing the things of God and his desire for the temple. And we see this starting in verse 46. Now, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, 
Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So after three days of being separated, Joseph and Mary find Jesus in the temple sitting among the teachers. And it says here that he was listening and asking questions. This was a common practice in that day where students, they'd sit at the feet of the rabbis and they would listen and they'd discuss things of theology and things about God and, um, and then they would read through the scriptures. And, and they would do this in sort of a uh, question and answering type format. And we can see that even at an early young age, Jesus has amazing knowledge of the things of God. In fact, it says that those listening to him were amazed at his understanding. And, and this will be a common theme that Luke highlights throughout his gospel narrative. People, and especially the religious elite, were amazed and astonished at the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus. So we can see that already, even at the age of 12, Jesus values the pursuit of knowing God. He also makes a very bold statement in verse 29. Jesus says that he must be in his father's house. Now, there, there are a couple meanings to this important statement, and I'll mention the first one here, and then we'll cover the second meaning um, in a few minutes. Uh, the first meaning defines how important the temple is to Jesus and to God. So much so that he tells his parents that th- this is where he must be. He says, why would you look anywhere else for me? This is my place. This is where I can be with my father. Jesus values not only the temple, but also the space as a place of worship and of learning the things of God. In Luke 19, uh, when we get there, uh, we'll see just how passionate Jesus is about his father's house. Uh, This is the account of when Jesus drives out the people, turning the temple into a marketplace. And and Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, makes this this statement in in chapter 19. He says that, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So that's how passionate he is about that place. My question to you is, how do you see the Father's house? What does God's temple mean to you? And when I say this house, I don't mean the physical building. I mean the gathering and communing of saints. Paul in Ephesians 2, when he's talking about us as believers, and he's talking about the gathering of the saints, he, he, says, he says this about being one in Christ. He says, But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So through Jesus' death, resurrection, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are now the holy temple. We are members of the household of God. When God thinks of his house, he thinks of us. I'll be a little bit transparent into my journey of understanding this. I mean, what better way to be transparent than uh, up on a stage with lights shining in your face and people staring at you and sweating through your shirt. Um, (laughs) It took me a long time to understand and value community. I mean, I'm talking well into my 30s. And, and, to, and next year I'll be 40. Talk about being transparent. Um, for the longest time, uh, <laughs> I would never have said this in the moment, but for the longest time, I viewed church as transactional. It, it was about what the church had to offer me and, and what, what I was getting out of it. I would grade the church based on my preferences. 
You know, what was the quality and depth of the teaching? Was the, was the pastor engaging? Was the worship spirit-filled, but, but not too spirit-filled? Uh, did I come away with new theological insights every week? Or uh, did I feel challenged, but not too challenged? I mean, don't take me out of my comfort zone, like make me preach a sermon or something. Uh, I, and the list went on and on. And here's the deal. All of those desires and features, they aren't in and of themselves bad. But they all lack one really key component. And that's relationships. That's, that's being known. That's knowing and being known by people. And none of these things have anything to do with loving and with communing and with living in deep relationships with one another. And I, I wish I could say that I read a book one day and my love for community um, just consumed my heart and I never looked back. But the truth is, it, it was born out of deep loss and, and tragedy. It was, it was being pursued when, when I didn't want to be pursued. It was having people sit with me during confusing times, during painful times, during moments when I didn't know what was going on and they were just there with me. It wasn't the perfectly built sermon. It wasn't the best worship set list. It wasn't a nice building. It was you guys. It was communing with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And look, community is hard. It takes time and commitment and sacrifice. And you never actually ever get it right. But... It is what God created for us, and it's how God designed us. And I'll, I'll be the first one to say that I'm still, I'm still trying to figure this out. But I know that Jesus is passionate about it, and so we should be too. And I know a lot of people in our cultural moment, they view church and participate in church in this way like I did, like in a trans- transactional sort of manner. So my question to you is this. How do, how do you view the Father's house? Are you passionate about God and about, are you passionate about God's people? Or are you worried about which place will best meet your preferences? Because look, that used to be me. And trust me, please hear me on this. You will never be satisfied if that's what you're looking for. Even if this church, there's a church out there that meets every one of your preferences, they will, it will e- either disappoint you or your preferences will change. So what are, what are you looking for? And how do you view and how are you committed to the Father's house? The last aspect I want to point out about Jesus in this passage is that Jesus had a very clear understanding of what he was created to do and what his purpose was. I mentioned it earlier that in verse 49, it has an additional meaning. Translators believe that the Greek, that in the Greek, another way to phrase this verse is by Jesus saying, did you not know that I must be about my father's business or about my father's work? So scholars, they think that Luke intentionally used this Greek phrasing to imply the dual meaning, that Jesus was both about his father's house and he was about his father's business. So in other words, Jesus is saying that his purpose is about following God's plan to redeem humanity to himself. And he will do this using the house and his people. And Luke will spend the remaining gospel narrative telling the story of just how Jesus accomplishes his purpose. 
Uh, an important point to mention is that this is the first time Jesus references God as his father. And by saying this, he is publicly acknowledging that he is the Christ. He is the son. He is the one who has come to save God's people. Jesus very intentionally is shifting his identity from the son of Joseph to the son of God. And, and it wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident that Jesus stayed in the temple. Jesus knew what he was doing. I mean, he's God. He knew Joseph and Mary would be upset with him. He knew they would have to search for him. And it's clear Jesus was purposely distancing himself from his earthly parents while joining himself to his heavenly father in the things God values most. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus, he's at that age where boys begin to step into manhood. And, it, and it's not a coincidence that we find Jesus doing just that in this passage. Uh, so much so that after this passage, we, we don't hear from Joseph again. Um, his name is hardly mentioned just in a few verses, um, and he's quickly phased out of Luke's narrative. Uh, John Tyson, uh, he's a pastor in New York City, and he's also an author and a speaker, and he has a, um, a father-son discipleship program. It's called the Primal Path, and, and the whole purpose of the program is to provide a fa- framework for fathers to guide their sons into adulthood over several formative years. Um, it's similar to the Jewish tradition. The program encourages fathers to start when their sons are turning 13. I say all this because in Tyson's research in developing this plan, he, he, he researched how boys have historically been initiated into manhood. And one of the things he saw repeatedly was a defining moment between mother and son. When the son shifts his attachment from his mother and he shifts it to his father, or in some cases, the community of men that are in the boy's life. And that marks an important moment in the boy's life and helps to form his masculine identity. And this is what we see happening in these verses, 46 to 49. Jesus is intentionally distancing himself from his mother, and he seeks to commune with his father. And and this is very formative time in Jesus' identity. His devotion to his father and his clear understanding of his purpose defined everything he did from this point on. And this is something that we as followers in Christ can, can all imitate. We may not have had a distinct moment like Jesus, but we, have all, we all have a specific purpose designed by God. Your purpose and my purpose, it isn't something that we have to go and discover. It's given to us by God. Now, I don't, I don't have time to unpack this and as much as I would like to, but, but this, is, this is huge for us. Jesus didn't have to go on some 20-day journey into the wilderness when he was 12 years old to discover his purpose. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to read a book or take a personality test or do some crazy challenge. His purpose was given to him the day he was born by his father. He knew what his purpose was. Just as that same father has given us our purpose. After his resurrection in Matthew 28, Jesus, he's spending some, time, some of his last moments with his disciples. Um, and he knows he has to leave. He knows he has to leave so that they can fulfill their purpose. And this is what he wants them to do. This is what he says they are made to do. This is what he says is, is their purpose when he leaves. He says this, 
He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded with you, to you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And here's what I want to drive home this morning. And, and this is for me, if not, if not more than it is for you. We have a specific purpose designed by God for how we live and what we do today. There is specific purpose for us today. There is specific purpose for us tomorrow. Whether you are 12 or 25 or 75, you have a specific purpose given to you by God. And what, what I want you to hear is that this is a present purpose. It's not something years from now or something that you've got to get everything just right or in order to get. Or something that, oh, if my circumstances change, I'll have it. No, this God has designed each of us for this specific purpose today, tomorrow, the next day. We are in it right now. It may not look like what we had expected. It may not feel like what we had expected. But neither did Jesus' purpose. It didn't look like what everyone had expected. But, and maybe that's the point. So with, G, what, with what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 28... Will you go to your neighbors? Will you go to your coworkers? Will you go to your family members? Will you go and make disciples? Will you make much of the name of Jesus and what he has done in your life? Like Jesus did in that temple, will you align yourself with your heavenly Father and value what he says is valuable? Because this is what God has created us to do. This is our purpose. Make much of Jesus as an accountant. Make much of Jesus as a high school student. Make much of Jesus as an engineer or a business owner. Make much of Jesus as a stay-at-home mom. Make much of Jesus and point people around you to him and tell them what he has done in your life. Teach them the things of Jesus. And here's the best part about the verse in Matthew 28. Jesus says that he will be with us always. He said it's better for us that he go than to stay, which is crazy. We all need to fulfill our purpose. We have all we need. We've got Jesus and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. We don't need anything else. I want to invite the band back up at this time, and I just want to spend a couple minutes um, reflecting on this and uh, in particular on how Jesus was so focused on fulfilling his father's purpose for his life. I think that this is the foundation that determined everything in Jesus's ministry. And the question I want us to consider is this. Am I clear on my purpose as a follower of Christ? Because if you are, then every day has meaning. Every day has intention, and, and every day has purpose. And, and if you're not a follower of Christ, I simply want you to consider what would it take for you to believe? Because he's in this room, and he will speak to you if you let him. So let's take a couple minutes, and then I'll close this in prayer.
Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I'm overwhelmed whenever we get together and worship your name. To hear the voices of the saints singing to you is, it's so good to my soul. Lord, thank you that we don't have to discover our purpose. Thank you that you have given it to us so freely. Father, I ask for courage. I ask for strength. I ask for wisdom for us to fulfill that purpose, to to follow it and to chase after it. Lord, we need you. We love you. Thank you for meeting us here today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.